Well, good morning. It's good to uh, be here again. Um, as uh, Peter said, uh, it's been a number of years, and uh, even prior to that, uh, I knew of Nick and Pete and others in the congregation here. Um, I think the only thing that really changes is I get less hair. That may seem almost difficult to uh, imagine, but, uh, but it is. And what is there just goes a little bit more gray and maybe even white in, in the beard too. So, um, But it is great to be with you again. I do bring with me the greetings of our congregation, uh, Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Placerville. Uh, as you pray for us, we pray for you. And uh, in fact, I'm not sure why we didn't do this before, but... Uh, in more recent times, uh, we have used the technology uh, to have uh, Nick and Pete join us uh, in our prayer meetings uh, several times a year, uh, just to give update on how you're doing and how we might pray for you uh, more uh, intelligently and specifically. And uh, we've, um, uh, we've, we're in a kind of odd place, right? California, right? You can't go much further west unless you go to Hawaii, I guess. Um, so it's not always easy to um, have physical fellowship and have people close by and uh, join in that way, um, but we've certainly appreciated the uh, uh, use of technology and uh, be able to have people join us through uh, live stream and Facebook, FaceTime and all those things in, in our prayer meetings so we can fellowship together in that way. Uh, for Sunday school this morning, um, your clock's way over there, so I think I'd probably better do, uh, do, do this with my watch. Um, many of you may know of um, Eric Alexander, great uh, servant of the Lord, um, a Scottish minister, uh, retired now. Um, he used to take his watch off in the pulpit uh, as he would preach, and uh, his family, his wife and his children used to report that that was the most meaningless thing their husband and father ever did, because it did not seem to constrain him in any fashion whatsoever. Um, I hope that's my actions a little bit more meaningful, um, but uh, we'll, we'll try and keep to our time this morning. Uh, it isn't my intention, Lord willing, in the service to preach from the book of Joshua uh, on the cities of refuge in uh, chapter uh, 20, um, but I thought for our Sunday school hour it might be helpful as this is not a consecutive series, and I'm somewhat jumping into uh, uh, the uh, end of the book, that we just spend a little bit of time in the book of Joshua, by way of an overview, an introduction, uh, so that might help us by the time we come to uh, the sermon. So I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the very opening words of the book of Joshua. So Joshua chapter 1, and reading verses uh, 1 and 2. So Joshua chapter 1, and reading the uh, first uh, two verses. And here we read God's word. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Amen. And so far, God's word. The word promise, the idea of a promise, is 
a very important and significant idea. It usually carries with it the idea of expectation, even eager expectation, and the idea of anticipation. If you promise something to one of your children, you get a real living example of that right in front of your eyes, right? Eager expectation to receive and anticipation, um, particularly if the promise is not immediately realized. So perhaps you might think of a birthday gift and you might say, well, uh, we're going to get you this as a gift and uh, we, we promise to do that. Um, but the birthday is some way off yet still. Uh, expectation and anticipation. But also with the idea of promise is the idea of promise not fulfilled. If you simply repeat words of promise and never fulfill them, if you just overuse it as a way of speaking, then it doesn't bring eager expectation and anticipation. It brings rather the idea of pessimism, uh, the idea of disappointment, of being let down. A cynic in our world may say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, promises, promises. Because their experiences of promise unfulfilled. You might even say those words, we've heard it all before, and it never comes to anything. So sadly today, promises can mean very little to people. Um, Many broken lives are the result of broken promises. Uh, broken promises of our politicians, broken promises of employers, perhaps, broken promises of spouses, parents, siblings, children. Uh, we could multiply the examples, couldn't we? You get the point. Indeed, many people today scoff at Christianity because of its promises, because they view the promises of the Bible through those kinds of bad, disappointing experiences at the hands of men, women, boys, and girls. Peter talks about that, doesn't he, in 2 Peter 3, verse 4, um, where people say, so where is the promise of his coming? Uh, we know there's a promise in the Bible of the return of the Lord Jesus, but, but where is it? All things have been going on and will continue to go on, they say. So where is this promise? But even though many people today are cynical about promises, they still fulfill a very important role in our lives. Uh, promises are pacts. The Bible speaks of them as covenants that are made. Uh, promises that we may make, entering into covenant with someone else, and most importantly, promises that God makes and enters into covenant with man. And so as we come to the book of Joshua, promise and the idea of promise, the idea of covenant is center stage in this book. We think back before Joshua's time to the time of the patriarchs, God had promised Abraham that he would give him the land of Canaan. He would give it to him as a possession for him and his offspring, Genesis 15 and verses 17 through 21. Israel's wanderings in the desert brought them from Sinai to the plains of Moab. And for four centuries, Israel had possessed this promise up to this point. The promise to Abraham regarding this land. 
But year after year, the promise was still yet unfulfilled. But now, now was the time. As they were poised on the eastern shores of the Jordan River, that God was going to fulfill the promise to give them the land. Now, as they looked at that, it may still have seemed very difficult, perhaps impossible, and it did to some of them. They looked at the obstacles. They looked at the fortified cities, they said, with walls up to heaven, up to the skies. They looked at the people, the great warrior nations of the Canaanites. How could God fulfill his promise? One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, How could a wandering group of shepherds overthrow a country of fortified cities? And the commentator then responds, The answer to that dilemma unfolds in the book of Joshua. End quote. So how might we summarize the book as a whole? Well, we could do so in this way. Uh, the book of Joshua is more than a mere recounting of the major events of the Israelite conquest of Canaan. It is that, but it's much more than that. It is a word from God as well as a word about God, who not only fulfilled his land promises to ancient Israel, he did that through Joshua, his great general for this day and for this time, but it's also about a God who keeps and fulfills his promises of salvation and the promise of a new heaven and a new earth through our great Lord and Savior, the great Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. So for the next few minutes, I just want to kind of sketch out and expand upon that uh, summary a little bit to help us enter in when we jump into uh, Joshua chapter 20. We're going to think about three things. First of all, the historical background and context for the book. Secondly, the book itself and its message. And then thirdly, uh, and this isn't just a kind of book on, uh, a point on preaching for preachers, but for preachers and hearers alike, how do you preach the book of Joshua uh, to believers today where we're not sitting here as ancient Israelites on the bank of the River Jordan, about to enter into a piece of real estate in the Middle East. How do you preach the book of Joshua in the New Covenant era to the church of the Lord Jesus made of Jew and Gentile, even throughout the world? So how do you preach the book of Joshua? So first of all, then, historical background and context. Uh, the opening words of the book, as we read them in verses 1 and 2, focus on Joshua here and his place in Israel's history. They indicate a major shift in the leadership of God's people. Moses is dead, and now the Lord will call Joshua to be his replacement. Uh, of course, the uh, words here don't just drop out of nowhere, out of uh, a vacuum. Uh, they are a continuation of what the Lord had said in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, which records the death of Moses. The question now, no doubt, for the people is, who will lead us now that Moses is dead? Who will lead us to victory in the conquest of the promised land? Now, when we read the sequence of events here from the Exodus through the wanderings in the wilderness, uh, it becomes fairly 
clear and evident quickly that Joshua, Moses' assistant, was a natural choice for the succession of leadership in the nation. Uh, from his first battle with Amalek in Exodus 17, uh, God had been preparing this man, Joshua, uh, for this task. Uh, but now it was 40 years later. And so that uh, speaks to each of us in our service of the Lord. We ought never to be discouraged, uh, whatever age we might be, when the Lord calls. It may take a long period of time of preparation before we enter into that call. Uh, it was so for myself. I was around that uh, 40 years of age when I went to seminary and before I entered full-time into the ministry. But the Lord had been working all these years in the life of Joshua, uh, even through his skills as a warrior, fighting the Lord's battles with the people, uh, but bringing him to this very point where now God would say to him, Arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am going to, that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel verse 2 of chapter 1. And so from this point on, Joshua would lead Israel against what we would often think, and they often thought, was impossible odds to achieve some of the greatest military victories recorded in all of the Holy Scripture. But Joshua was not just a great military leader. Primarily, and of first importance, he was a man of God. He was a man of God. The Lord spoke to Joshua after the death of Moses, chapter 1, verse 1. But this was not his first encounter with God. Uh, Joshua accompanied Moses on Mount Sinai. We read that in Exodus 24, verse 13, during the leadership of Moses. We read that Joshua did not depart from the tent of meeting after Moses met with God, Exodus 33, 7 through 11. And the Spirit of God dwelt in Joshua. Numbers 27, verse 18. And therefore, he was known as a man who followed the Lord wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. Numbers 32 at verse 12. So here is the, the background. The succession of leadership, the camping on the bank of the Jordan about to enter the land. That's the context for the book of Joshua. So we turn secondly to the book and its message. Uh, the book opens with the first of many times that the Lord reveals himself to this man, Joshua, to Israel's new leader. The subsequent revelations were of various kinds and relating to various instructions as he prepared and led the people into battle. He was instructed after their conquest to divide up the land amongst the various tribes according to the allotment of the Lord's purpose and then gave final instruction. We read that towards the end of the book, uh, calling on the people to obey the Lord, to love him, uh, perhaps with some of those most well-known words of the book of Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve and exhorting and admonishing the people to cling to the Lord with all of their hearts. If you think about the book as a whole, it's a fairly large book, not the largest by any means, but certainly not the smallest either. Uh, the book of Joshua can be divided into several major sections. Uh, the first five chapters are all about preparation, 
spiritual and military for the conquest. And then the next seven chapters, 6 through 12, describe that actual conquest, the battles, the, uh, uh, the good days and the bad days, and uh, the uh, many days, which is often forgotten. I, it struck me again as I preached through uh, this recently in our congregation. Um, we read through this book as you can through most books of the Bible, and it doesn't take very long, does it? Even with a careful reading, you can do that in, in, in minutes or perhaps the longer books, maybe an hour or two. Um, but years pass in the book of Joshua uh, whilst they are going about this conquest of the land. They, they cross Jordan at Jericho, Ai, their central campaign. They turn south, they turn north. Um, and even as you get to the end of the book of Joshua, uh, all of the Canaanites are not fully subdued. Um, so there's a lengthy period of time here that sometimes we can lose just by reading uh, the uh, a few chapters of the book. But 6 through 12 give us a sense of that, the actual conquest. And then following that, Joshua saw to it that the tribes received their inheritance. And then we have these uh, chapters 13 through 19, which are somewhat of a challenge to preach, as I found out as you go through the great details of every tribe and the allotted land, their borders and their cities and all of those things. Um, and uh, one of the things I, I found um, challenging but interesting to do um, was even to explain to our younger people, to our children, there is a purpose for this in the Word of God. This is the inspired Word of God just as much as anywhere else. And so why is this here? It's to fulfill the point we made right at the beginning, that the Lord fulfilled his promise in every detail, to every tribe, to every clan, to every family, to every individual, that he had promised them the land and they got their piece of uh, Canaan, uh, even as God had said. Well, then, as we come towards the end of the book, we uh, come to the chapter we'll be looking at, chapter 20, that talks about cities of refuge, because this was still a fallen world into which uh, they were uh, uh, even entering in the land of Canaan. And things, as we would say, would still go wrong. This was not the new heavens and the new earth yet in which dwelt righteousness. And the Lord made provision graciously for that. And then we read of the uh, cities uh, for the Levites. You remember they were not given any specific uh, apportionment with the other tribes, but they were to be scattered so that they might minister amongst Israel we read of that in chapter 21, the cities and pasture lands for the Levites. And then as we come to the real, real end, as we might say, of the book, uh, the history of the conquest concludes with the um, tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh returning back over the Jordan. You remember they'd asked for their apportionment on that side, and God had granted that. But the Lord had said to them, you don't get to enjoy that until all of your brothers have their inheritance. And so they crossed the Jordan to be in part of that conquest uh, in uh, the west. And then when that was complete, they returned. And again, Joshua charged them to remain faithful uh, to the Lord, even with this significant physical barrier. Um, again, we may not think of it so much in our modern day um, but uh, think of the great uh, Colorado River or the great Mississippi River and uh, living uh, with your family on the other side and not with modern transportation uh, to simply throw a bridge over there. 
uh, or to, uh, to fly over to the next state or wherever. Um, and so Joshua charges them to remain faithful. And remember, they build an altar, not in competition uh, to the uh, altar at uh, Shiloh, but as an altar of remembrance, an altar of unity, that they too are part of the people of God, so that when the generations succeed, they don't get separated simply by their geographical uh, separation. And then as we come to the end of the book, uh, closing verses, we read of the death of Joshua and also of uh, the fulfillment of burying of the bones of Joseph in the promised land and the death of Eleazar the high priest and the succession of the priesthood in the book. But again, as we think about that, then, so what is the message of the book? I come back to that and repeat because I think it's important that we get this fixed uh, in our minds. Uh, this is not just mere history. Um, this will be one of the issues we'll think about in a moment in the preaching of the book. Um, we're not just giving lectures in ancient Israelite history. Interesting though that would be. We were thinking about historians and uh, history is very important, but not just as abstract facts. Um, why is this all recorded for us here? Um, it's because of this idea of fulfilled promise fulfilled promise. And we see that again and again and again. Missionary David Livingstone uh, said this. Um, it said somewhat, I think maybe at times we might um, be a little kind of sensitive to the, to the language here because we want to always speak in reverent awe of our God. Um, and yet he speaks in this familiar language, I think, to make an appropriate point. Livingstone said this. God is a gentleman. Now, you, you understand he's an Englishman. Um, he's thinking of a gentleman in that sense of a man of honor, uh, a man who fulfills his word. Um, I can identify with that. I'm one of those, you know, eccentric, uh, archetypal Englishmen, even after all these years here in the United States. But, but he says, God is a gentleman. He always keeps his word. Not a great quote from Livingston. Um, in proper context, not drawing down man to, sim, to God down to man's level, but taking that uh, analogy. Uh, God is a gentleman, he said. He always keeps his word. And that's what God is doing here throughout the book of Joshua, fulfilling his word. Well, then we come to preaching the book of Joshua. Um, so how, how do you preach this book then? It's so full of many details and so many facts and events and circumstances. Um, well, as I've said, preaching the book and therefore listening to sermons on the book uh, needs to involve more than simply narrating the history and, uh, and then somehow perhaps finding a way to tack on the gospel and Jesus to the end because we've got to do that, right, in a sermon somewhere. You've got to get to Jesus, and you've got to get to the gospel. Uh, so many times, that's how people try and preach the book. They struggle through all of the uh, details, whether you have a long um, pericope section or whether you have shorter sections. Um, and then having got through that, and uh, perhaps their congregations, having listened to that for quite a lengthy period for a sermon, um, well, how then do you get to Jesus, and how do you get to the gospel um, through lots of land borders and cities, and um, this is east of this, and this is west of that, and, and so on. How, how do you do that? 
Well, I think the New Testament itself helps us with that, and particularly the book of Hebrews and the writer and author to the Hebrews, because he draws an analogy pointing to the similarity and the dissimilarity. So the way in which it is similar and the way in which it is different when he thinks of Joshua leading ancient Israel into Canaan and thinking about Jesus, the great Joshua, leading his people into the ultimate rest of God. And uh, we see that in detail, Hebrews 4, 8 through 16. There, the author to the Hebrews sees Joshua as a man who, as we would say, prefigures Christ. He points forward to Jesus Christ. Um, He's a type, if you like, the technical language of Christ. He points to what Jesus will come to do in that fullness of time, as Paul speaks of it in Galatians 4, when the time had fully come. And so the land of Canaan itself was a picture. It was not the ultimate rest for the people of God, but it was a picture of that everlasting rest that God's people were to inherit. Not in this life, not in a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but in the life to come. Now, the land itself in Joshua's time was real. They entered into a real location. They possessed a real land, and they enjoyed the benefits of that under what we call the land promise of the Old Covenant. It was real for Joshua, as it was for Abraham, his forefather, who had walked it but never really possessed it. Uh, That was yet to come, even in that physical sense, in the Joshua generation. But even for them, Every believing Israelite was still looking for more than just physical Canaan. And the author to the Hebrews tells us that. Speaking even of Abraham, who did not possess it to the same extent that Joshua and his generation did, the writer to the Hebrews says that Abraham was looking forward, what, to just physical Canaan? No, to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And what city is that? It's the new Jerusalem, the land of everlasting promise. That's the possession, the inheritance of every believer. Not because of this Joshua of the book of Joshua, but of one greater than that Joshua, the greatest Joshua who defeated all of our enemies, sin, death, the evil one, all that stood in the way of us inheriting our everlasting life. And so when we place the message of Joshua in its historical and redemptive context, and that's the whole secret of preaching all of Scripture, of course, but particularly as we're thinking here of the book of Joshua. Um, Did not Jesus say that to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that all of Scripture is about me, right? It's concerning me. And that's as true of the book of Joshua as any other book in the Bible. And so as we look at it in its redemptive context, then that's where we begin to see the relevance of it for us here in the 21st century, here in the United States, here in Arizona. Um, Beyond just interesting ancient Jewish history, we find in this old covenant book a profoundly Christian message, profoundly Christian message. Because God not only kept and fulfilled his land promises, to ancient Israel through Joshua, 
He also keeps and fulfills his promise of salvation and of the new heavens and the new earth through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but when you have opportunity, read through the last two chapters of the whole of Scripture, Revelation 21 and 22, to see how that language and picture and themes uh, are taken up again at the very end of Scripture, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, a city, a land, and so forth. And so God intends for his faithfulness to Christ, even as the one whom he has sent, as he fulfilled that uh, covenant of redemption, even as he fulfills that covenant of grace and, and distributes the great benefits of that to us in and through Christ. Then even as we see at the end of Joshua uh, that, that God's promises was then to elicit a response of faithfulness in them. Um, they failed of that. They couldn't ultimately fulfill that. That's why Christ had to come and fulfill it perfectly, meritoriously in their place. But we see that repeated again then in the relevance for us. As we see God's faithfulness in Christ to us, his great Joshua, it is to elicit then that response not a meritorious response whereby we then earn the inheritance, but a response of gratitude, of thankfulness, that we love the Lord. We were speaking just earlier before we came together of um, our affections for Christ, stirring up that love for Christ, uh, the desire for communion with uh, the triune God uh, in His Son and by His Spirit uh, is what we stirs us up to even as we see it in the book of Joshua. And so even those words that uh, Joshua uh, gave to the people are given to us. So whom will you serve? Choose you this day whom you will be served. Will you be faithful to Christ, the one who has been faithful for his people? Well, let me pause there. I think we have a few minutes. Do we go to 9.40? Nick? Okay. 45? Okay. So uh, we have uh, 10, 10, 15 minutes here. Um, Questions, uh, thoughts, responses to the book of Joshua? Um, didn't want to take all the time by just, you know, um, uh, one-way communication this morning in our Sunday school hour. Um, anybody read the book of Joshua recently? And uh, um, it's perhaps not the, one of the most popular books to read, but uh, yeah, please, uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Pastor. At the end of chapter 21, it says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. Mm. All came to pass. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you had some insights into the importance of Joshua and this particular verse as it relates to covenant theology mm -hmm. and you know, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters whom we love look at the Abrahamic covenant as um, being of the same substance, just a different administration when we get to the, the New Testament. But not only the last two chapters of the Bible, but the first two chapters of the Bible give us a bit of insight because um, Adam was in a land that was good, but under the covenant of works, he failed, and God's promised sanctions came to pass, and he was driven out of that land. Mm -hmm. 
here God has promised the land, but also sanctions mm. that you would be driven out of the land. Mm-hmm. So it seems that the substance of the Abrahamic covenant isn't the same as the substance of the covenant of grace. And this seems to indicate that God fulfilled his promise in giving them the land. Mm-hmm. Um, but Israel didn't fulfill their side by um, failing to follow God's law with all their heart, soul, and mind. Um, the penalty was being expelled from the very land that mm. uh, they were promised, which would then be sanctions and mm. would be a type of covenant of works as sure. opposed to grace. Yeah. It's a great question. And... Um... How many hours do we have for me to respond to that? <laughs> um, you could teach a whole class, you know, um, uh, uh, not just for one morning, but for many weeks on, 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 on that covenantal uh, aspect of that. Let me try and respond in a summary way. Um, let me say, first of all, with regard to 2145, uh, that's one of the greatest verses in the book of Joshua. Um, in our English Bibles, um, we, we don't always see the full... Um, uh, richness of, of what the text actually says here. Uh, we often read, this is the ESV, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. Um, in the original Hebrew, it actually literally says, uh, not one of all the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had fallen. Had fallen is the idiom used in um, the Hebrew, which, I mean, of course, words don't literally fall, right? Um, but it's used that way to, to get to this idea of failure, and that's why it's rendered in our English Bible's failure. But what isn't perhaps drawn out so much by failure is the contrast to what had happened to the enemies of Israel. What had happened to them in every battle? They'd fallen, right? They'd been decimated. But not one word of promise had fallen. They'd all been fulfilled. And so I think that helps to bring the richness of that out um, in the contrast of what God did um, with regard to the enemies, the great, remember, the impossibility of the conquest, humanly speaking. These fortified cities, these uh, Anahim, the great giants uh, of the Canaanites. Uh, I often said to our children, you know, like, we're up here like seven, eight feet tall guys, you know, and some of our little ones are down here and, you know, without physically inviting them up. But so, so do you want to take this guy on? You know, what chance do you really think you've got against this guy in battle? Um, you know, you've got no long-range missiles. You've got no drones to take them out. This is hand-to-hand fighting. So do you want to take this guy on? Um, but the Lord was faithful as they trusted. And when they tried to do that, AI part one, exactly what they should have feared um, in the right way happened, right? They thought they could go and do it. They'd done Jericho, so we, let's just go and take AI. We can do this. And they failed and they were chased. Um, they repent and all the rest, uh, as we know, the sin of Achan. And when the Lord is with them, it doesn't matter how high. So we would say the taller they are, they, the farther they fall, right? Um, because they all fell before the great and mighty, mighty Lord. Coming then to the uh, covenantal aspects of the promise, um, it is a complex thing to, to think through. I think the best way to say it, and one thing to say is, in our Reformed tradition, um, uh, 
Covenant theology is not, as we would say, monolithic. Not every theologian, faithful theologian, faithful uh, pastor, even our Puritan forefathers, would not formulate it identically. Um, the way they would nuance some of these things, uh, they would, would differ in. Um, as a Reformed Baptist, and, and I wouldn't necessarily agree with all of my Reformed Baptist brothers and theologians and pastors on how you formulate this, um, but I think one of the best ways to see this is, you're right, in the garden is a covenant of works. Do this and live. In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. So there is the offer of eternal life based on works. Um, of course, Adam fails, therefore the sanctions of the covenant come, and he is expelled from the garden. And that's why you get the garden imagery back in Revelation 21-22, right? Um, if you like John Milton, I don't um, advocate him as a theologian, but he's a great poet, English poet, paradise lost, paradise regained. Um, you see that, Genesis 3, Revelation 21-22. Um, so then we come to the covenant of grace, which for Christ is a covenant of works. He still has to merit it. You know, you can't have grace outside of God's holiness and justice. Uh, grace and justice are not uh, competing with each other. See which one wins. Um, so it is only ever grace for us as the people of God because it was works for Christ. And so he has to come and be the Israelite who is faithful. He has to be the son who is faithful. He has to be the second Adam, representative, federal head, who fulfills these things. And so you have a covenant of grace then whereby we receive freely um, forgiveness of all of our sins and the gift of eternal life, the righteousness that the law demands. Now, how do you kind of get to this under the Mosaic covenant, because that's where it's most complicated. Abrahamic is a, is a covenant of grace. Um, even though it involves land promise and then there's conditions to that, as we'll see in a moment, um, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of grace. Um, now, that's where some of the differences come, whether you want to say it's an administration of the covenant of grace and what does that mean. Uh, and our Presbyterian brethren would take it to a direction I'd certainly not willing to go as a Reformed Baptist when it comes to your children and your children's children. Um, but what do you do under the Mosaic Covenant when you've got the land here and the possession of the land conditional upon obedience? Well, I think the best way to see it is like this. The Mosaic Covenant um, still is a, an expression of the covenant of grace, ultimately. Um, you see that through the sacrificial system, which is a prefigurement of trusting in a sacrifice made, which is not you. You know, they didn't bring themselves and put themselves on the altar, right, and, and shed their own blood every time they failed. Um, so I think you can see it is, and we could, I could give you much more to, to prove it's, 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 a, uh, its content is, is essentially the covenant of grace. But, and this is where the issue and the point that Rob Roy was making um, Still embedded, though, within the Mosaic Covenant is what many theologians call uh, an underlying um, covenant of works principle. And that's what the land possession is dependent upon. So that when they are not faithful, as Joshua encouraged them to be, and they did not take long for that to happen because you get to the book of Judges in chapter 1 and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, right? And you see the horror of what's going on in Israel. Uh, you think of the horror of what goes on in Gibeon, right? Of, of 
Benjamin. Um, and in the Lord's forbearance, he doesn't bring judgment immediately, but eventually, northern Israel, captivity uh, to Assyria, never to return, and then uh, Judah uh, to Babylon, and only a very small remnant returns. Right? Um, so I think that's the best way to formulate the Mosaic Covenant, is still it is the covenant of grace being worked out, the big picture, as you see uh, with the... Um, sacrificial system, the looking forward to the promise of the Christ to come who will fulfill all these things. Um, but in the meantime, in God's redemptive purpose under the old covenant, with essentially a theocratic people, a nation that is governed both civilly and spiritually uh, under God with um, laws given directly by God to govern all of those things, then the possession of the land uh, the physical land of Canaan, is uh, an embedded works principle of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and so do this and you will remain. And you'll get to enjoy the land flowing with milk and honey. Don't, and you will be ejected. And I think what's interesting is it's the same sort of language of the ejection from the garden, right? The being thrust out. You know, um, uh, some of the language is, you know, very graphic. It, God speaks of vomiting them out. Uh, and, you know, you all know when you're sick and that happens, right? And that's not a, a nice and easy kind of experience. It's all nice and cozy. You know, it's a very violent thing, isn't it? And when God thrusts them out for their, for their sin. Does that help? Um, and, um, you know, to, to do more than that, we don't have time uh, this morning. But, you know, I commend to you a number of, um, you know, books that can be read that help with that. You know, all sorts of levels as kind of introductory level tasters, and then you can read more. And as you read more, you will see some of the variations of our Reformed tradition in, in, in describing those things. I'm sure your pastors here will be glad to talk to you more, more about that. I think, sorry I've taken, you know, I think all the time we have for the, just right now for that one question, but we have some time this afternoon, right, to yes. pick up some, some more things from the book of Joshua, so um, please, uh, we can do that. And lunchtime too, if anyone's chat about, I'm excited about the book of Joshua right now. You can tell I'm preaching through it, and uh, so I'd be very glad to, to talk more about the book of Joshua. Well, let's pray, shall we? And then we'll draw to a close for uh, Sunday school hour. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the book of Joshua. We are thankful for the way it shows us you fulfilling your promise, uh, the promise that is embedded in your covenants made with men. Lord, we are thankful that after the breaking of the covenant of works in the garden, you did not consign all men to ultimate, consummate judgment. You uh, purposed even from uh, everlasting even under the eternal covenant of redemption, to save your people, and that you would send your son, the great Joshua, the great son of David, even, O oh Lord, that Israelite, that faithful one, who would therefore be the one who would merit even all of those blessings that you had promised under uh, the covenant of works. And so we're thankful for him. We pray that you would turn our hearts to him now. We would sing uh, your great praise, even in all that you have done as the triune God of the covenant, the God of your people. Help us, Lord, not just to be taken up uh, intellectually with these things, glorious though they are. May they draw out our affections and our love for you. And the great wonder of the length and breadth and the height and depth of the love of God towards his people in his Son, 
even to this great end that we might dwell with you even in the new heavens and the new earth. So help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.